the FA, Premier League, EFL, Barclays FA Women's Super League and FA Women's Championship have collectively agreed to postpone the professional game in England until the 3rd of April at the earliest. This action, which will be kept under constant review, has been taken due to the increasing number of clubs taking steps to isolate their players and staff because of the COVID-19 virus. The postponements include all matches in the Championship, League One and League Two, as well as academy and youth team fixtures. For ages, it was hard to imagine just how football would look during a global pandemic. There was talk of isolation camps, reduced halves, no-look tackles. A lot of it sounded bonkers. It was tough to stomach any diluted version of the game, but over time, it became crystal clear that there would have to be changes. We're still awaiting official confirmation from the Premier League, but it is understood that clubs have agreed to that restart date of June the 17th. After 96 days, or to be more precise, 2,304 hours, the Premier League returns with Project Restart on its marks and set to go. As soon as we had confirmation that clubs had unanimously agreed to contact training, this was the next logical step. It has been a long, layered, uncertain and unprecedented process of navigating a global pandemic to get back on the pitch. There will be a liability issue for employers, so I'm not sure how Premier League clubs are going to get around it. I'm Melissa Reddy, and over this three-part series, we'll be exploring the hurdles, the adjustments, and analysing every facet behind the resumption of England's top flight, as well as its future with expert voices from around the game. It's whole whether the player have an opinion, but going beyond that, just think, was it safe? Well, they don't know that. I think footballers have to realise that if, if the vast majority of society is going back to work with risk, footballers are going to have to do the same. A lot of people were spoken to and a lot of right people were put in the right situations to make uh, informed decisions. And that seems like smart management, uh, but it also seems like very thorough preparation. No, no stone was left unturned, as, as, you, as you might say. This is the return of the Premier League exclusively on Football Ramble Daily. Episode 2, The New Normal. The existence of clubs depended on it. The pyramid as we know it depended on it. Football would have to return in some form in order for us to be able to one day enjoy it in its full element again. But trying to figure out how to sketch the Premier League's resumption during a situation that no one had any experience of, and that was ever-changing, was like drunks stumbling around in the dark. The only certainty was matches would have to be played behind closed doors. Every other suggestion seemed too far-fetched. Every scenario felt at odds with logic and the concept of lockdown. The pressure to throw in the towel on Project Restart heightened when France's League One became the first of the major European divisions to be cancelled in April. La saison 2019-2020 de sport professionnel, notamment celle de football, ne pourra pas non plus reprendre. On May 6, however, German Chancellor Angela Merkel confirmed the Bundesliga could resume later that month. 
Germany's top flight has gone on to provide the template to follow in terms of training protocols and the new matchday routine. Good news for sports fans, the German Bundesliga is set to resume play tomorrow, making it the first major European football league to do so. But it's not business as usual for fans. It also emboldened the UK government to support the Premier League with its desire to continue the season. On by Brandt. That's a bit better. All eyes were on the Bundesliga on May 16, with its return happening without any major hitches. It had to be Erling Haaland. Two days later, Premier League clubs agreed to stage one of the return to training protocols, which allowed teams to have sessions in small, staggered groups. ESPN senior writer Mark Ogden, who has covered the entirety of Project Restart, believes the development in Germany was gigantic for the game here. I think the Bundesliga being back has been a big thing. I think since since those games started, the, the opposition towards the Premier League coming back from players has certainly diminished. And I think, again, another factor has been that they've got back to their clubs to training and seen the measures in place and how the efforts that have been made to make it safe. So I think a lot have been reassured. Now, there'll always be one or two that are still reluctant and, you know, they have every right to just to you know stay away if they feel the need but yeah I think the big things have been the Bundesliga coming back and players going back to training and seeing for their own eyes what is being done and uh, that's why we're in the situation we're in now I think a lot of the concerns have been have melted away because of that The Bundesliga's return was a lot more collaborative and less sabotage as German football expert and author Jonathan Harding explains. I'd say more than anything, it was a, a sense of necessity. I think there was some collaboration involved. Obviously, we saw the uh, solidarity fund that came together from Borussia Dortmund, Bayern Munich, uh, RB Leipzig and Bayer Leverkusen, the Bundesliga's Champions League teams. And, you know, that, that 20 million euro fund to, to help teams in the top two flights, as well as to help the, the Frauen Bundesliga, the women's Bundesliga to restart, shows you that there was a great deal of collaboration in, in avoiding financial concern. But I think the restart was definitely a case of, of financial, it was a case of financial necessity. Uh, I think clubs, particularly in Germany, would not have been able to survive the, the loss of something like you know nearly 700 million pounds if they hadn't played the last nine games. I mean, that, that figures in terms of missing gate receipts and lost sponsorship money and outstanding television money that wouldn't have been paid had those games not been played. And, you know, German clubs just wouldn't have survived uh, that situation, some of the, the smaller clubs in particular. Of course, that then throws up the concern that I think a lot of active fan groups then, then put to those clubs and say, how is it possible that the entire existence of our football club is now threatened because of, of you know, three or four weeks of, of missing games? Um, and I think that's maybe a, a bigger question that will continue to rumble into the future in terms of the existence of football clubs and how dependent they are on television money. But I think there was a sense of collaboration, but the return, most of all, I think came out of uh, out of necessity. I think a lot of work went into to making it possible for football to return. I think it's not really to be underestimated how much work the DFL, so the German Football League, which is the organisation that runs the top two divisions in Germany, how much work they put in. Um, particularly Christian Seifert, who's the head of the DFL. I thought he handled the crisis pretty well. He was very open and, and clear with his communication. There was a you know a big document, I think 50 pages in English, on what procedures were needed and, and how the, the hygiene concept that the DFL produced 
was to be put into place and what it included. You know, there's so many things involved in that process from, you know, designated areas in and around the stadium where a certain number of people were allowed to be and dis disinfected footballs and separate team arrivals. And I think every possible angle was considered. And I think that with the combination of the task force that was set up to create that procedure or that document and then to look after the, the implementation of, of those procedures, I think the combination of those two things definitely helped convince the politicians and local health authorities that it was possible for the Bundesliga to return. And I think the constant communication with local health authorities and the way that Seifert dealt with the, the crisis publicly and, and I think, you know, even from the outside, it seems privately, the way that he dealt with it um, obviously helped uh, because the Bundesliga was able to return on the, on the fact that a lot of people were spoken to and a lot of right people were put in the right situations to make uh, informed decisions. That seems like smart management, uh, but it also seems like very thorough preparation. No, no stone was left unturned, as, as, you, as you might say. Yeah, I think inevitably there has been some pride, but I think that pride probably extends beyond football and, and is part of how the country handled the situation as a whole. I think a competent government makes a big difference and allows for things like football to return. And, you know, I think it's, it's sometimes easy to just think that, oh, the re return of football is, is the be-all and end-all. But I think, you know, I think there was a lot of pride in how, how Germany handled the situation um, as a whole, as, as a government, and in doing so, allowed for the things, you know, like football to return. Um, obviously, there's no doubt that being the first league back was a big deal for the Bundesliga. It puts them in a situation that they've never been in before and to have the attention of the world. Um, you know, that's something I think they have always wanted, but obviously not in the circumstance. Um, it's an unusual circumstance because... It's not really, you know, the, the Bundesliga slogan is football as it's meant to be. Um, and I mean, this is obviously not that because a big part of football and especially German football is with, with, is with the presence of fans. And uh, for that not to be the case made it very odd. But I think there was some, some pride, definitely. Uh, but Germany has long had a tradition of, of if they're going to do something, then they're going to do it right. And um, this felt like another one of those moments. Mark wasn't the only one tuning into the early rounds of the Bundesliga. Here's Bournemouth and Wales defender Chris Metham. I've definitely watched a few of the games and yeah, again, it's, it is very different. You can sort of hear the sound of the ball when you're sort of watching, uh, watching the games and like you said, everything becomes a lot more clear. You obviously haven't got the, the noise from the fans, so there's suddenly a lot more focus on the actual game itself rather than sort of sat there listening to a lot of commentary listening to the, the atmosphere from the fans and stuff sometimes you can when you're watching a game of football you can get sort of lost with with the emotions of it but I think obviously take fans away and suddenly you've got a lot of focus on the actual game itself you can hear things a lot clearer and I think it will sort of change change the field again I think sort of people's voices will be heard a lot more um, information from from teammates will become a lot more clearer so um, yeah I think it will like I said affect it in different ways and I think we will only sort of know the full effects once we're in that environment come the sort of 20th of June So that's how the Bundesliga helped 
Project Restart stepped it up with coronavirus testing. But what does taking one actually feel like? We get the details after this. With the Bundesliga back and the Premier League voting to return to phase one of training, the coronavirus testing procedure was put under the spotlight. The Premier League invested £4 million to acquire coronavirus testing kits to ensure Project Restart was implemented safely. Conducted by Hong Kong-based biotechnology company Pronetics, the tests determine if an individual has the virus now. In an interview with The Independent, Avi Lassero, chief executive of the firm, detailed the process. The test consists of two parts. The first involves taking a quick swab of the nose and the back of the throat. These are conducted at drive through stations. The samples are sealed and couriered to the doctor's laboratory, a private facility in London. The analysis done there represents step two and is fed back to the Premier League clubs. Results can be delivered within 48 hours. Chris Metham sheds light on what the testing procedure feels like. Personally, I was dreading it because I sort of heard roughly what the test would consist of and it didn't sound that pleasant. I think a lot of the lads were the same, but yeah, I think the testing's got easier, um, less painful. But yeah, again, ultimately it's it's given the um, given the Premier League all the information that they need in terms of who's come back positive, who's come back negative, and ultimately that's that's the right thing to do. With testing working and proof that a safe environment was in place, clubs unanimously voted to return to contact training on May 27. That was a major victory for Project Restart. It also meant clubs had to adjust to safety protocols on a larger scale with greater concentration, as Jürgen Klopp explained in an interview with Liverpool's in-house media channels. When you make the step from 10 players or two groups of five to nearly 30, that's massive. And we still have to stick to the same thing. So it's, it's, uh, we are fully concentrated when we come, here, come in here. Let me say it like this, that we do the right things where we get the temperature tested and all these things. So it's not like it, like it usually is, but it's completely fine. But it's just um, when you come here, it's not like, yippee, you think, where do I have to drive and where do I have to, where is somebody who gets my temperature and all that stuff. That's, that's how it is normal. For Chris Metham, Phase two was welcomed after previously not being able to make tackles as a defender. I think the the staff and as a group of players, I think we've sort of fitted into it really well. Um, it's all, always going to be tricky because we're used to sort of contact sport. We're used to tackling and training. So to sort of have that taken away from you, it does become very different compared to what you're normally used to. But again, we knew the situation. We knew... We all got sent the guidelines and our captain sort of made it clear. And if anyone had any questions, then there were people that could sort of answer them for us. So yeah, we knew what we was coming into and we were sort of told that hopefully the, the phase one will sort of end um, very quickly and we can sort of move on to phase two, which we 
we now were in so yeah luckily it weren't it didn't sort of drag them too long and once contact training started again then it sort of felt more more real and it felt like we were sort of returning more to normality obviously it's not going to completely be that way but yeah it's starting to feel feel like um, it's returning more more to normality Getting the players to buy into Project Restart hasn't always been easy, as ESPN's Mark Ogden remembers. Troy Deeney was quite outspoken at Watford about the risks he, he felt that he was putting himself and his family through by returning to action. Even though you know the, the protocols are in place, he made the point that he can it's safe enough to jump for a header in a penalty box with 20 other players, but it's not safe enough yet to have your hair cut. And that, you know, that, that's a kind of anomaly of the, the social distancing rules in the UK right now. But... I think they've been spoken to by the leading medical advisors and told it really is as safe as it can possibly be. And I think it can never be 100% safe. Football never has been a risk-free uh, you know, profession. It's always carried risk. But I think on the reality is that some of those risks were known risk. It's the unknown risk of of playing with it with a virus. But you know, the the, the checks and the, the the medical backup for this is so is so in depth. I mean. Footballers are probably some of the luckiest people in the country in terms of they're going to a workplace where everything possible has been done to make sure they're safe. And I think, you know, the average guy in the street doesn't have that luxury. You know, we're talking about, you know, people who work in public transport, who work in the health service, that they don't have these luxuries. So I think footballers have realised that there may still be opposition from some, but everything possible has been done to make it happen. And if something happens in the sense that players get coronavirus and there are issues beyond that it won't be because of loopholes or failings in the system it's be, it'll be because the nature of the virus is that it, nobody's absolutely safe from it but football is doing everything possible to make it as safe as possible you know everybody in, in life has to take some sort of risks right now and there's no perfect scenario to, to get back and I think I think some footballers I, I think went too far in the sense that they were making cases that it wasn't safe to go back when we know that so much has been done to help them when, when you know the average man and woman in the street was, was as we just said didn't have the luxury of, of all the um, protocols in place so I think I think footballers ultimately they are paid to play and if they're told it's safe then they're not scientists they're not experts they have, they have to take the expert advice without without trying to impose I don't know, um, ideas that aren't backed up in scientific facts. And that, that, that was one thing that struck me, that it's whole well and good that a player having an opinion, but going beyond that and suggesting it wasn't safe, well, they don't know that. And I think, thankfully, we've had the scientific advisors. I think I think Jonathan Van Tam was one of the one of the people involved in a lot of these calls that has actually reassured a lot of footballers. They have, you know, they have to trust that the experts because they're the people that are guiding us through this and there will be mistakes made, but... I think footballers have to realise that if, if the vast majority of society is going back to work with risk, footballers are going to have to do the same. One of the sources of comfort when players returned to training was the data provided by Statsports. Co-founder Sean O'Connor breaks it down for us. The key thing to understand is that the the teams use our data regularly and have done for a number of years, every training session. And they're normally looking at things like distances and speeds and the load placed on the players in sessions and in, in matches. 
what we did was we were able to look at the same data, but just look at it from a different angle. So instead of looking at the key metrics, like the ones I just mentioned, we were able to look at the location and position of players in relation to each other. So the concept was giving every player a two meter um, circle around them and being able to identify how often and for how long players would enter the two meter radius of another player. That's called an incursion. So when somebody goes inside within two meters of another player. So being able to identify how often that happens and, and how long for. So it was able to provide really good data. So objective black and white data on sessions pre-COVID to understand what that looked like to help sessions now that COVID is, is there, is here and is with us, that we can minimize risk for players and staff uh, during uh, training sessions and games. This is certainly one aspect which I think would have provided a comfort to, to players and staff alike because it, I think there was a, um, an overriding sense of um, surprise in a really positive way that the duration, the average duration was, was just over that three second mark. So when, when people could understand that and also understand that th this was all the average duration of, of just over three seconds per contact. That's pre-COVID, so that's including when you're standing beside a player with water bottles and having breaks and drinks and stopping for coaching inter inter interaction. Um, knowing then that going forward, we can look to reduce those contact times. So I think there's definitely a comfort in understanding. The data just gives you a platform to understand what's happened in the past and how we can then positively affect that uh, in the future. Coronavirus forced football into an off-season. What would usually follow is a full pre-season of nearly two months to build up fitness and match sharpness with friendly games. Clubs have only been afforded three weeks to prime their squads. So, how can injuries be avoided? Sports science expert Stuart Morton explains what will be happening at training facilities across the top flight. They have had a, a quite a curtailed um, period of time to, to prepare the athletes. Um, normally, as you say, about sort of uh, five to six weeks, so they've had about half. What they normally do in a, in a pre-season period is very carefully monitor through GPS monitoring of all the training uh, sessions that take place, but also the matches, the workload of each of their players. And what they do is they create a kind of uh, a rolling uh, assessment of the workload over normally about a three to four week period. And, and do what they call a, a true to chronic workload ratio. Basically trying to identify if there's any peaks in activity levels, i.e. You know, when, when training sessions have been ramped up and there's significantly increased the, the workload on those players. If those occur too many times in a short space of time, then that can often lead to injury in the players. So what we've been doing is really carefully monitoring those uh, those workloads in the last three weeks and, and having to play a little bit of a game of sort of cat and mouse almost in terms of trying to increase the workload probably faster than they would do in a normal pre-season training uh, process. But monitoring that against this um, uh, this true to chronic workload ratio to try and ensure that they're not hitting large peaks that are going to potentially put the, the players at risk of injury. They're going to be really aware that the players are going to be thrown back into match scenarios in, in the, uh, the very near future in, in slightly unusual circumstances as well. So the other thing we've got to consider here is that the players are going to be playing in a period of time that they're not often used to in, in the UK. Some of the players will have been experiencing international duty and so potentially have been to European Championships and, and World Cups that take place over the summer. So are used to competing at maybe slightly higher temperatures, slightly different humidity levels. 
but you know, competing over the next couple of months, the, these players are going to be stressed in a way that they're not normally used to. And normally, the last month or so of the season is played in in hotter conditions, and those teams that get through to the later stages of the the cup competitions, whether those are to say a European or or domestic, um, will will play more games in this period of time. But it's not the norm for all of them, so that's something that's going to have to be considered as well. Obviously, the Premier League have tried to mitigate that a little bit by allowing five substitutions um, in the remaining games um, to allow greater changes in, in personnel on the pitch to try and mitigate that if you have got some players that are struggling slightly. But it's it's definitely something that the, the sports science teams will have been looking at and trying to make sure that the, the players are as prepared as possible whilst trying to avoid overstraining them and, and uh, potentially leaving them open to, to injuries either in the training uh, period or uh, during the matches themselves. The, the highest occurrence of injuries are in the first 15 and last 15 minutes of any matches. So what they're going to want to try and do is ensure that the, the players are as ready as possible for the start of games. So adhering to the standard warm-up procedures that normally take place, but also, as we say, try and get the players as fit as possible so they're not overstretching for maybe more of the match than they would have been doing previously. So where in a normal season, the injury risk is in the final 15 minutes. Maybe now with players that are less uh, less physiologically prepared, we might be looking at the final 20 minutes of a game where the injury rates might be increasing slightly. So that's where these things like additional substitutions um, are going to really play an important role in, in protecting the players. The measures that have been taken in terms of health, safety and conditioning have been comprehensive. Football has invested heavily and worked incredibly hard to ensure the most protective environment possible under the circumstances. It is undeniable that the Bundesliga's return wiped away a lot of fears held by players, with further comfort coming from new training procedures and the low figures of positive COVID-19 cases across the league after testing. While footballers are obviously important for the game, clubs are even more fundamental coronavirus and its financial ramifications put the existence of some in doubt. The crisis is bigger than any player, bigger than any self-interest. Football as we know it was under threat, which we will explore in episode 3 of the return of the Premier League. We'll also analyse the state of play around broadcasting, how the neutral venues discussion materialised, and how the effects of coronavirus will reshape football. I think that the reality is that Project Restart is the only viable opportunity, particularly for the Premier League, to uh, to maintain its financial position. You need to remember that if the if the Premier League had been curtailed, then uh, the big broadcasters, particularly B Sky, B and BT Sport, would have needed to reclaim somewhere in the region of seven hundred and fifty million pounds. That would have been uh, extraordinarily problematic for teams to to balance their their budgets for this year. That's on the third and final episode of the return of the Premier League on Football Ramble Daily. The return of the Premier League is a Stakhanov production. Our producer is Charlie Morgan. Sound design and mixing is by Tom Wally. The executive producers are John Teague and Luke Aaron Moore. Our theme music is The Ground After a Summer Rain by At The End Of Times nothing. Additional music comes from Power Druid, Brendan Muller, Dens and Pobicat. All music comes courtesy of Epidemic Sound. My name is Melissa Reddy. Thank you for listening.
This was a Stakhanov production.